0: I'm Adam. I'm assistant pastor of discipleship and events here at Lakeland, and I'm excited uh, to be bringing the final message um, in our series on Daniel. It's a little bit bittersweet, of course. Um, it's such an incredible book, and uh, yeah, we're going to start this morning by reading uh, a chapter. Actually, excerpts of a chapter. This is a very long chapter, and as as well-used as our time would be just to sit and read scripture through all of um, the service, which would be a good use of our time. Uh, I also wanted to say at least a couple things about it. So I, I did clip a little bit some of the... So if you notice that and you're like, hey, are you skipping like important parts? Are you skipping um, parts that you thought we didn't want to hear? No, that's not what's happening here. Um, we're just going to try to get the gist of the story as much as we can. So I'm going to be reading excerpts from Daniel chapter 2. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, "'I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means.'" the king said to the astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream. And they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this. And he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling him the secret, so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and Daniel praised the God of heaven. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions that you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart, in your vision, your majesty. You saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and the meaning is certain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we conclude the book of Daniel this morning, it's important to step back and and take stock of where we've been over these past three weeks. We have followed a group of people that have been removed from their homeland and taken away to another place, another culture, one that is ambivalent or even hostile to God. Now in chapter one, we met Daniel and some of his friends. They highlighted the importance of finding a balanced approach to culture, a third way between the extreme positions Of, on the one hand, just being completely assimilated by by the godlessness that we find around us. And, on the other hand, to treat this culture as our enemy that we must flee from or or battle against. Then we move to chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to assimilate and bow down to the statue of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We identified, though, the fourth figure who saved these men from death in the furnace as Jesus himself. And we showed that his willingness to walk into the eternal fire of suffering allows us to walk out. Free and unharmed. Then we skipped all the way ahead to Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel, as an old man, was thrown into a den of lions because of jealousy. We saw Daniel's winsomeness as a goal for our own attempts to live into the third way. And we saw that Daniel's resurrection of sorts pointed us forward to Jesus and the eternal life that his resurrection brings. Now, these have been great stories and and great lessons from a remarkable book. But to me, a huge question still remains. You see, a lot of what we've talked about so far is God coming into the midst of a specific sticky situation and saving specific people from specific harm and even death. But, oh, and it's true that, that those stories help us to see how God saves us from harm and eternal death ourselves. So they've been incredibly important to us. But as the Hebrew exiles in Babylon continued to live in that world that they found themselves in, a more general concern had to have taken shape. As God's prophets continued to remind them, it was God who placed them there in that situation. They had turned their back on God and ignored Him for far too long, and they were experiencing the consequences of their spiritual apathy. Now, seeing God come and rescue some of their leaders like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that was amazing. But what about the rest of them? (laughs) What was the state of their relationship to God as a people? Was God still in control? Or was the world slipping away from him? declining beyond his ability to rally the troops. As many prophets stated, was there the people's sin and apathy so great and it took them so far away from the heart and will of God that he had basically just forgotten about them had he simply left them to the consequences of their foolishness, allowing them to slip away into their ultimate demise. In the summer of 2001, before my senior year of college, I had the incredible opportunity to study abroad in Spain. I loved my time overseas, the food, the the culture, the adventure of travel in general. It was truly one of my very favorite experiences in life. But one thing that really jarred me about my time there was the state of Christianity that I found. Now, many people had described Europe to me as having a dead faith, and that still feels a bit harsh to me, but I also saw what they meant. In general, a majority of the continent had hardly any notion of God's presence and activity, any recognition of spiritual realities. When I returned home, I came back to an America that couldn't have felt more different to me than that, especially being here in the northern reaches of the Bible Belt. But in these last 20-plus years, I have seen American culture become closer to what I experienced in Europe than what I experience on my return home. It's a culture that's losing sight of transcendence, a culture so comfortable and self-reliant that it no longer has a need for God. The church itself in America is in decline as we continue to splinter off into smaller and smaller cells, attaching ourselves to worldly organizations who either want to co-opt us for their purposes or eliminate us altogether. At the end of the day then, we find ourselves in a very familiar situation to what we see in Daniel. Asking some of the very same questions that those exiles did. Is God still in control? Is the world slipping away from him? Declining beyond his ability to rally the troops? As some have suggested, has our sin and apathy as a people taken us so far away from the heart and will of God that he has just forgotten about us? Is he simply leaving us to the consequences of our foolishness, allowing us to slip away into our ultimate demise? This morning, we're going to address this bigger problem and this bigger question. Because thankfully, the book of Daniel has an answer to this too. So chapter 2 that we just read began by telling us that Nebuchadnezzar was having dreams. The dreams were extremely troubling to him. So much so that he decided he was completely done messing around with his magicians and enchanters and dream interpreters. And he says to them, not only do I demand that you interpret this dream for me, I demand that you also tell me what the dream was in the first place. Have you ever stepped into a conversation like halfway in and found that you were being dropped right into the middle of a very loaded situation? I feel that we've done that here in Daniel chapter two. How many times have Nebuchadnezzar's magicians claimed that they could interpret a dream for him and then once he hears them attempt it, he realizes that they're basically just making stuff up. Now, tearing them limb from limb and burning down all their houses feels like an extreme way to me to get to the bottom of a situation like this. But then again... That's why Nebuchadnezzar has climbed the ladder to become dictator over the most powerful empire in the world, and I haven't. So the magicians and the diviners respond incredulously to Nebuchadnezzar's demand. They say, there is no way that we can pull this off. In verse 10, they make this claim. No one can reveal the events of the dream to the king except the gods And the gods do not live among people. Now, I must admit, I do love some good irony. And this statement is just absolutely dripping with it. It is true, they were correct, that only God, the real, true God, could reveal the events and interpretation of the dream. However, what they've obviously missed is the God of the Bible Did come to live among people. After hearing that the magicians are unable to interpret the dream, Nebuchadnezzar decides empty threats are not the way forward, which means that he has now committed himself to several days of limb tearing and house burning. In fact, he is so incensed about this whole ordeal that he orders every magician, every wise man, and every advisor to be executed. Unfortunately for our friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they have been trained for the positions of wise men and advisors, which means that there is now a price on their head. Upon hearing this, Daniel does something a bit surprising. He goes to the man who has been put in charge of the execution order, and he requests a meeting with the king. We might think this means that Daniel has the dream. He's been shown. But in reality, he had not. Because then he goes to his friends and tells them, it's time to pray to God and ask him to give us the dream now that I've gone and arranged a meeting with the king. So they pray to God for compassion and for wisdom. And this faithful God responds by giving Daniel the content and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the dream is a doozy, a great image with a golden head, arms and chest of silver, hips of bronze, legs of iron, feet of Of iron mixed with clay. An impressive sounding figure, to be sure. But Daniel's interpretation for the king is probably not exactly what he wanted to hear. Daniel says the the different precious metal portions of the statue represent different kingdoms. The golden head is Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire, but another kingdom would follow his slightly inferior in power, silver to Nebuchadnezzar's gold. A third kingdom would follow that. And after that kingdom, a fourth, strong as iron, able to shatter any other metal that gets in its way. The statue is powerful looking. It is mighty and bright and intimidating. It represents well the Dazzling ambition and authority of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And even the kingdoms that would follow his, like Persia, Greece, Rome. These empires are ruled by powerful men, wielders of authority, displayers of majesty and grandeur. Their dream is total conquest. Their promise is utter domination and they make good on their promise the weaker nations around them crumble beneath the weight of their stature but the feet of the statue are made of clay this is a turning point in the dream because the feet the part of the statue that holds it up, that provides its foundation, are weak. They're vulnerable. They're able to be knocked down. In this dream, God clearly says to Nebuchadnezzar and everyone who follows him, if you build your life on anything besides me, it will crumble at your feet and you will be Undone. You aren't as certain of yourself as you appear, Nebuchadnezzar. It's why you were so upset when you first had this dream. Your fear, your unease, your paranoia, they make you fragile and they will allow you to be brought down. And who or what will bring him down. Darius and the Persians, Alexander the Great and the Greeks, Caesar and the Romans. Technically, yes. But in reality, that's not what the dream says. It says, a stone was cut from a mountain but by no human hand. And it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. It's not the successive kingdoms ultimately that bring one another down. It's this stone. Now, interestingly, Daniel doesn't fully interpret this part for Nebuchadnezzar. What exactly is the stone? What is the thing that truly brings down the kingdoms of this world? For the answer to this, we'll have to leave chapter 2, though it is a good one. It's been good to us, but we need a little help. And for that, we're going to have to go way forward to Daniel chapter 7. You see, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had in Daniel chapter 2 It wasn't the last time that God would give a vision of the future to someone in this book. In chapter 7, it's Daniel who receives the vision. And as we read this together, I want you to look for some similarities to the first one that we read. "'In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction.'" Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool, He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority. Honor and sovereignty over all the nations of this world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, you might be wondering how was that one like the first? What in the world am I supposed to have gotten out of that crazy description? If you take the parts of the statue from chapter 2 and simply replace them with the description of the beasts from chapter 7, I think the connection begins to come into view. Again, God seems to be describing mighty kingdoms that dominate the world around them. And yet, are devoured by the next great beast to rise up and desire total power. One after another, they come and terrorize the world until the Ancient of Days comes and takes his seat at the throne. God, Creator, Ruler, judge, steps in to take action. And what does he do? He puts a new king on the throne. One like a son of man, we're told. And this son of man is given real authority, real honor real sovereignty over all the nations of the world. Peoples of every race and nation and language gathered under one banner and for one purpose to worship the real king. And we know who this king is, don't we? Certainly, those who have been here for the first three sermons in the series will know because this has not been kept a secret at any point during the book of Daniel. But even those of us who haven't been here, we know who calls himself the Son of Man in the New Testament. Don't worry, it's the quintessential church answer. You've got this. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. And now as we put these two visions together in our minds, we also see that Jesus is the answer to our first question this morning. Who is the rock, the stone? Who will be the one to bash the feet of clay and topple the statue of the kingdoms of this world? There's a fantastic story that I heard um, from a preacher named Alistair Begg. In the 1920s, Lord Reith, a man from the highlands of Scotland, helped to establish the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, and he became its first director general. Now, the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s began to impact the BBC in every level of its organization. And one day during a meeting, a young producer stood up and said to Lord Reith, the world is changing and the BBC doesn't need to worry about any religious programming any longer. The people of this world don't even care about religion and the church is becoming more and more obsolete. And Lord Reith, who was all of six foot six, stood up, slowly gathered himself, and he said about the very corporation that he helped to start, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And it will. (laughs) The church will stand at the graves of CNN and Fox News. It will stand at the graves of all political parties. It will stand at the graves of dictators and nations, corporations and economic systems. When we realize this, my friends, we will truly possess the key to the meaning of human history. We will have a clearer perspective of the relative importance of all things. And we will truly understand the point of the here and now. We will see more clearly our role as exiles, as ambassadors to this current world we live in on behalf of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom has come through the birth and life of Jesus Christ. It is coming by means of the spread of the good news of the gospel in this world today. And it will come finally, universally, to replace all others with the love and peace and joy that God ordained this world to have from the very beginning of creation. This is powerful, meaningful stuff. And if we're going to truly comprehend this, we must attempt to grasp how the message of this importance of the kingdom of a God affects everything, everything about this world, everything about our lives, our families, our marriages, our singleness, our work, our play our experiences, our decisions, all of it must be understood in light of the complete and eternal existence of God's kingdom, its preeminence, its precedence over literally everything else that we see in the world around us. If we do not see this world as a temporary placeholder for the real thing that has already begun and will be made complete and perfect someday, soon, we will lose perspective. We will be easily swayed, and we will lose sight of what truly matters. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not an easy time to navigate as a Christian it might not get easier. Church numbers have been dropping over the past several decades. Brothers and sisters in Christ are more easily divided now over worldly matters than ever before in history. Popular opinion, as driven by many, many voices in the world, have been consistently turning up the heat on the church and faith. Each Sunday, On your way to church, you drive by probably hundreds of houses filled with thousands of people who give little to no thought to what you are doing. Some may even belittle it or hate it. This, I firmly believe, is the lesson of Daniel for you. Don't be distraught over dwindling numbers or bad press. This is but a blip on the path to eternity that God is paving. Now, Certainly don't bow down at the altar of Nebuchadnezzar or heed the Babylons of our time and our culture. But don't wage war against them either. Don't take matters into your own hands and feel the need to lash out or defend yourself. Commit to the church. This is our act of rebellion. Show up. Serve your church family and the world around you. Give yourself to it fully. This is the way, brothers and sisters. And you know that when you do these things, you are being used by the almighty God to build the only kingdom that will last forever. That is no small thing. The things that you face and you do on a day-to-day basis, they may seem small, And I can guarantee you that everything in this world is going to try to make them feel small. But they are not in vain. So do not panic. Do not anguish. Do not fear. Enjoy a deep confidence even as the tides are changing and crashing up against our faith. As the pagan dictator Darius told us last week, God lives, God reigns, and God rescues. God is still in control. The world is not slipping away from him, declining beyond his ability to rally the troops. Our sin and apathy have not taken us so far away from God and his will and his heart that he has basically just given up on us. None of that is true because it is Jesus Christ who reigns forever and ever. His resurrection is the vindication and the proof that he is indeed the rock That smashes the statue of the kingdoms of this world in Daniel chapter 2. And the Son of Man promised to take the true throne in Daniel chapter 7. And his kingdom will outlast them all. That is the message of the book of Daniel. May that Bring us the hope and the courage that it was meant to bring. Amen.